And we're going to begin in verse 11. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we come before you. O Lord, we, we bless you, we thank you. For this day, we thank you for this past week, and we acknowledge and confess our sins before you, O Lord. And uh, I pray before you for this whole congregation, for myself included, O Father, that we have fallen short. But we look to you, O Heavenly Father, we look to your mercy, and we ask that you cleanse us and wash us and renew us, sanctify us, O God. You are the God of second chances. And as you have forgiven us, help us to forgive one another, to love one another. And now, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes of our hearts, that we may behold what it is you're teaching us today in your word. Give us wisdom. Give us grace. Give us understanding, O oh Lord, to these, these mysteries here, these deep mysteries of the gospel that we're about to explore in the subject of baptism Oh, Father God, I, I pray that our hearts would be renewed today, encouraged and strengthened to live for you. In Christ's name, amen. So what we have here today is a text before us. And this text speaks to us regarding what we call baptism. And baptism, one of the two ordinances in it's a passage that, uh, that is often used um, to refer to baptism and our understanding and doctrine of it. But I want you to see the bigger picture here. And the, the, the big picture is the theme in Colossians and the theme of this passage is what does it mean to be in Christ? That phrase, in Christ, is repeated throughout just about every other sentence in the book of Colossians. This is this is what the Christian life is. It's about being in Christ, Christ being in us, and what it means to have union with the Lord. Our life is hid with Christ, and he is in us. This is the life of the Spirit. Now, we learn through the book of Colossians, there is a fundamental difference between someone who thinks they are a Christian and someone who genuinely is. There are many people who are churchgoers. There are many people who are Christians, they were born in Christian households, or they've had a religious experience, but they are not in Christ. There's a fundamental difference between the two. And one of the biggest misleading, um, I should say, assurances would be baptism. Now, of course, among others, there are maybe a, a religious awakening. You 
could look back and say, I remember a time in my life where I had this, this experience and I understood the things of God better, but since then your life hasn't really changed much. Or maybe you went to an altar call at some evangelistic crusade and you gave your life to Jesus. It was very emotional, but your life hasn't changed much since. But also baptism is a very symbolic uh, um, activity and it's a symbolic act that takes place in the Christian life and the Christian experience that people look back to and say, well, I was baptized, therefore I must be a Christian. I know one man in particular who got baptized with me the same night I did, and he believes he's a Christian because he was baptized that night with me, not because of me in particular, but his experience there. He, he is a total pagan. He lives like a pagan. He, he knows nothing about the things of God, but he truly believes that because he was baptized that night, He's a Christian. Baptism can be very misleading in terms of giving false assurance, particularly your view of baptism. There are three views that encompass all of Christendom of baptism, and I'm I'm gonna briefly explain each one, and then we're gonna we're gonna look at the scripture, and I'm gonna explain to you why I'm a Baptist, why we're Baptists, why we believe in what we call to be credo-baptism. All right, so that's one of the three. But let me start at the top, which it probably is the longest-running view, and that is the Roman Catholic view of baptism, and that is what we call baptismal generate, regeneration. Roman Catholics baptize infants, and we know that because many of us have Roman Catholic backgrounds, like myself. I was born and raised in an Italian Catholic household, and and Catholicism is bound up in the culture like it is with many cultures around the world. And so when you have a baby, you, you have a christening. It's a party you go to, and you go to the church, and the priest pours water over the baby's head. And, and I'm sure that most Roman Catholics have absolutely no idea what it means other than it's an excuse for a party and to make some money. It's a blessing. It's, you know, this initiation. It's you're entering but really what it is, the theological understanding and underpinning of baptism from a Roman Catholic perspective is that when you are baptized as an infant, you are born again. And so the pouring of the water upon the baby's head is actually the priest initiating the baby, the infant, into Christianity, into the kingdom of God, and thus regenerating the baby at that point. It's a means of grace or initiating grace in the baby where they are initiated into the kingdom. And then at that point, it's up to that child as they grow to continue in the sacraments, penance and communion and confirmation and so on, to further bring upon more grace so that they will remain in the kingdom of God. It's a religion of works. And so therefore, it is up to the child as they develop to continue in fulfilling these sacraments to maintain their standing in the kingdom of God. Now, I can go into a much deeper exploration of Roman Catholicism, but that's not my intent today. It's simply to describe the, the understanding and definition of baptism from a Roman Catholic perspective. Now, there are others who take this view, like the International Church of Christ, for example. Um, some of our people have come from that background. In the International Church of Christ, adults who come to faith and believe are baptized, but they also likewise believe in baptismal regeneration. 
that the rite of baptism actually rebirths you, that it brings about regeneration and being born again. And this is clearly out of step with orthodox historical Christianity. Therefore, the Church of Christ makes the claim that salvation could be found in no other church apart from the Church of Christ because their doctrine is so errant. That's one view. The second view is paedo-baptism. It's probably the most prominent view among Protestant Christians, mainline Protestant Christians. So when I talk about Protestant Christianity, I'm talking about Lutheranism. I'm talking about Episcopalianism. I'm talking about Anglicanism. I'm talking about Methodism. And I'm talking about Presbyterianism. These make up the majority of Protestant Christians. And if you have friends or family members who are Protestant Christians, they likewise baptize their babies. The difference is they do not believe that their babies are born again. They broke from Roman Catholicism, and the Reformers uh, clearly understood that such a view of regeneration was faulty, it was unbiblical. But the act of baptizing infants was hard to break from. So the fundamental view of the Reformers is that, that as a, a, a Christian family, when you have children, how do we uh, bless our children? How do we initiate our children? One of the things they, they, in their studies they came to and was from the very passage we're looking at today was, well, okay, look at this passage. It talks about circumcision. It talks about baptism. What circumcision was to the Old Testament community Right, the initiating of the young males, eight weeks old, into the covenant community of Israel is what baptism is. And so the concept of covenant theology is the covenant community, the covenant family, and the covenant blessings. Now follow me. In covenant theology, you look at the Old Testament church and you say, that circumcision didn't mean you were saved, but what it did mean was that the external covenant blessings between God and Israel rested upon that child. And it was up to them to follow and obey the ways of God. In the same way, paedo-baptists baptize their children with the idea this is the New Testament version of circumcision, initiating the child into the Christian faith, and then it's up to them to eventually confirm their faith. So we do away with the sacraments, but a lot of the mainline Protestants do have confirmation when kids are around 12, 13 years old. Sam Storm says this, Christian baptism, according to the paedo-baptist view, is the New Testament counterpart to Old Testament circumcision. It does not guarantee the salvation of the infant, but sets them apart as children of covenant parents who are thus included in the external blessings and responsibilities of the people of God. Baptized infants are thus under the umbrella, so to speak, of God's new covenant blessing. Parents of the infant pray that he or she will personally receive the blessings of salvation in Christ, which baptism signifies, and they hope and trust that baptism is the foreshadowing of what will take place when their child personally embraces Jesus as a Savior. This is closely related to the idea that God deals not merely with the individual based on personal faith, but with the corporate entities based. Talk about all the arguments you want with them, but this is the passage. If you don't get this, 
and you're not able to explain this and understand this passage, you won't be able to make a compelling argument. And by the way, you can you will not make a compelling argument to a Pado Baptist. I have very good friends of mine, very good friends of mine who I dearly love, who are committed Christians, who are also Pado Baptists. And 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 we we will argue and we will never see eye to eye. That's just we're never going to agree. And that's okay, right? This is something, it's not a primary issue. It's not something we're going to, you know, who's going to hell and who's going to heaven. This is, this is something where we're convinced we're right, they're convinced they're right, and we're just not going to agree. And when we get to heaven, we'll find out. I'm pretty sure we're going to win that one. But I'll never forget some years ago when I was on vacation in Orlando, uh, Claudia and I, we went to uh, R.C. Sprawl's church in in um, in, in or- St. Mary's, or I forgot the exact city. It's off off of a suburb of Orlando. And I was so enthusiastic to go to the church. I couldn't wait. I mean, R.C. Sproul was just my favorite theologian. I listened to him on radio since I was a young Christian, and we got there. And I was so excited. The worship service, the building, it was, it was a real experience. And what do you think he preached on that day? Pado baptism. <laughs> And I, it was funny because I told Claudia, she was the next thing, I says, I'm going to tell you every argument he's going to make before he makes it. I wrote it down. And little one by one, he did exactly what I said he would do. I, I know their argument. I know their, their system. I know that they're going to approach And they had a christening that day as well, or a baptism, I should say. Regardless of it all, it's something that we can, we can have friendly disagreement on. We don't divide over. But I am convinced, I am thoroughly convinced as a Baptist I'm not going to change my mind. We lost two people, dear people, who attended our church for a couple of years, and they were convinced in paedo-baptism and refused to submit to believer's baptism. And they went into a church that fit their beliefs, and I understand that. But we're not going to change. We cannot change our fundamental view. We cannot change our confessional view. It's who we are. It's our identity. All right. So we're going to look at a few things here to present our view of believer's baptism or Credo baptism, and that is that baptism does not precede faith, but proceeds from faith. And biblically, and I can go through all of it, but if you look at the book of Acts and you look at the the record of the New Testament, it is always the case that faith comes before baptism. You can infer that that. Baptism comes first, like the household baptism. Well, there must have been infants there, and they must have been baptized. Well, that's a great case thing, but it's, it's really hard. You have to do some gymnastics to get that out. Clearly, the clear, like I was reading from the confession, the clear understanding of Scripture tells us faith precedes baptism. Baptism doesn't precede faith. So the first thing we need to do in understanding is, is what is it talking about here in terms of a circumcision? Because if circumcision, if baptism is the New Testament version of circumcision, well then the, you know, the Paedo-Baptists, they got it right. But let's look exactly what it's talking about here because in verse 11, it tells us in him, that is in Christ, remember we're in him, this is our spiritual union to him, you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, there is a circumcision here, no doubt. 
But is this speaking of the Old Testament circumcision? Well, let's go back to Genesis chapter 17 and see what, what circumcision was in the Old Testament. Genesis 17 is when God made a covenant with Abraham, or ratified the covenant, I should say. The covenant is made, Genesis chapter 12, and chapter, Genesis chapter 15, it is confirmed. And in Genesis 17, it's a little span of like 25 years, God ratifies the covenant with the sign of circumcision. All right, this is, uh, this is very critical in understanding the, the origination of circumcision. Verse 9 Genesis 17, 9, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised so that my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Notice the covenant in your flesh. Circumcision is a carving of the flesh. It's a carving of the skin, the foreskins of a man's reproductive organ. Of all the signs that God came up with, that was that's a pretty gruesome and painful sign. Why? Why this sign? Well, what was God's covenant with Abraham? Well, go back a few verses earlier and you you see this great promise, this this covenant, this unconditional covenant that God made with Abraham. He says in verse 5, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between you, me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. Offspring, the seed of Abraham. It goes back to that motif when, when God said to the serpent that, that the woman's seed will crush your head. And you will bruise its heel. This, this seed, this offspring that, that God would progenate through the human race would come ultimately in the form of Christ who would defeat Satan, who would defeat sin. But he told Abraham, I'm going to bless you. You're going to have so many children. Genesis 15 to be like the stars of the heavens, like the sands of the desert. So will your offspring be. Here was an old man with a barren wife. What, what, what was God going to do with them? Well, surely he multiplied their offspring. He fulfilled that covenant. And the seed is the, the race that, that comes through to Abraham, through the Jewish people, ultimately to Christ. And it's symbolized through the male reproductive organs. 
because that's where the seed continues to follow. And so it's a mark in the flesh. It's a sign in the flesh. It's a covenant sign that, that they are to obey and to keep, to remind them of their covenant with God. If you're not circumcised, you're outside of the kingdom of God. You're not part of God's people. And so you can see when you get to the New Testament why circumcision is such a big deal for Jewish believers. Right? One of Paul's main problems in Judaism, uh, with Judaism, I should say rather, is that they're constantly trying to undermine him within the Christian communities in the churches he plants by telling Gentile Christians, listen, if you want to be a real Christian, you gotta get back, you gotta get circumcised too. Circumcision is necessary, it's God's law, it's a mark between his covenant, it's eternal. You must do this. And then, of course, the church council in Acts 15 says no. And so what kind of circumcision then is Paul talking about in Colossians 2? That would be a circumcision made with hands. It would be a physical circumcision. But he says something different in verse 11. He's not referring to this circumcision. He says, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That phrase there in the Greek, whenever it says something made without hands... Like in Hebrews chapter 11, when it says, you know, that Abraham and his, his descendants looked forward to that city whose founder and maker is God. It was a, a city made without hands. It's, it's God who does the work here. This is a circumcision that God does. In fact, specifically, Paul says it's the circumcision of Christ. It's the circumcision of Christ. Now, the Old Testament actually speaks about this kind of circumcision, it's a spiritual circumcision. It's the circumcision of the heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 36, chapter 30, verse 6, listen to what Moses says. He's talking about, he's given the, the, the warnings of the blessings and the curses. He says, you're going to fail, you're going to mess up, but if you repent, God will restore you. He'll show favor upon you. And look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter verse 6. It says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart in the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and that you may live. This is a work of God. God does something to the heart. He, he, he removes, as Paul says, he removes the foreskin of the flesh. The body of flesh, rather. The putting off of the body of flesh. Interesting, that phrase there, body of flesh, what is that speaking about? And, the, and, and the, the word there, putting off, is actually, more, the more literal translation of it is stripped. It's, it's almost gruesome. It's like literally peeling the skin off is what it means. What's Paul talking about? Now, some have said, well, this is talking about Christ when, when, he, when he was dying on the cross. You know, he, his flesh was, was ripped off his body. I don't think that's what it's talking about. I think if you look further down in verse 13, it says, you who were dead in the trespasses, talking about our state, our, human, our natural state before conversion, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. This is talking about our sinful nature. What we're talking about is the human heart, the human condition apart from God. See, circumcision symbolizes being set apart and devoted to God. And here what we're seeing here is that the uncircumcised heart is a heart that's against God. 
It's opposed to God. It hates God. It's the heart of a person who's dead in their sins and their trespasses. You see, at the end of the day, all of us, prior to knowing Christ and prior to being born again, are all dead in sins and trespasses. We're not spiritually sick, we're spiritually dead. Death means that you're separated. You're alienated from the things of God. Sin causes separation and a broken relationship. It's both original sin that we inherited from Adam, but it's the actual sins that we commit that further distances us from God. It's like any relationship. The more injury, the more offense, the further two people grow. And with God, the more injury and the more offense, and we're guilty, right? We're guilty. We just keep piling that sin. We sin, and then we think we can continue sinning and think that God's going to be okay with it. That's uncircumcised heart. That's a heart that has no fear of God. We need is a heart change. God has to circumcise heart. He has to change it. The prophet Ezekiel spoke about it in different language. Look in Ezekiel 36, verse 22. In Ezekiel verse, chapter 36, verse 22, again, speaking of a forward time in history when God will restore his people. He says, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord. This is, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now notice, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Isn't that exactly what language that was used in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6? The circumcision of the heart causes a man to love God and to keep his commandments. Let me make this clear. In our natural state, your heart is as hard as stone. In your mind, you can grasp Christianity. You can get the gospel. You could even be religious. But the heart is hard. It's like flint towards God. There's no remorse for sin. There's no feeling. It's, it's dead. You're dead to God. When God gives you a new heart, when he does a heart transplant surgery, takes that stony heart out and puts a heart of flesh, your, your heart is tender. It's sensitive towards God. There's a love for God and there's a love for his word and there's a love for righteousness and a hatred for sin. God puts that there. And that's what we call the new birth. It's called being born again. And so when we talk about this circumcision done without hands, this is not speaking of physical circumcision, but speaking about spiritual circumcision. It's talking about the new birth. And so if anything, baptism doesn't 
is not the counterpart or parallel of Old Testament circumcision. Baptism is the new covenant sign of the inward reality of the new birth. It's the reality of being born again. What does Paul say in Romans 2, 28 through 21? For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and the circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not the letter, for his praise is not from man, but from God. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 5, 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel at what I say to you. You must be born again. We use that phrase, born again Christians, flippantly at times, but that is precisely what the circumcision of Christ is. It is a work of God in the heart of taking an unregenerate, hardened sinner who is defiant against God, who hates God, who has no feeling towards God, and he carves that heart. He strips the carnal nature off of it. And he makes us tender towards God so that we may and can believe in him and trust him and love him and follow him. Unless you're born again, you cannot become a Christian. This is the fundamental difference of what it means to be in Christ, what it means to not be in Christ. And so that brings us to our second point then. If we understand now what this circumcision is, then what is the baptism? What is the meaning of baptism then? Let's go back to our passage in Colossians 2. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. I want to stop there for a minute. We're seeing here that now, having been buried, the, 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 the understanding here is that you've already been baptized. You were already circumcised and you've already been baptized. This is speaking to the Christian church in Colossae. They've come to faith in Christ. They have been born again, and they've already been baptized. So what does the baptism symbolize? The baptism symbolizes our union with Christ. If you were in him circumcised, then the baptism is the symbol of the in himness, of being in Christ of being one with him. And we demonstrate that the act and the ritual of baptism is a dramatic presentation of our participation in the burial of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Just as Christ was buried, we are immersed and literally dipped and submerged in water and we literally come out of the water like we're being raised from the spiritual dead. It is a beautiful picture of salvation. Nowhere in the scripture, nowhere do we have any example of babies and infants being sprinkled with water. It is meant to be a demonstration, a literal portrait of conversion, of our participation in Christ, that we've been buried with him, we've been raised with him. Look at Romans 6, verse 3 through 11. 
Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. It's about union with Christ. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the same phrase here, body of sin, body of flesh, the sinful nature, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For he or one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died for sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives for God. So you also reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. I mean, here's the, this is what it is. We are dead. The sinful nature, the old man has been put to death. It's been crucified. It's been killed. It's been stripped away from us. And yet at the same time, we've been given new life, the resurrection life, the power of God dwelling in us. So then why is it we struggle so much? If we've been given the new nature and the old man has been put away, why, why do I fail? Why do I still sin? Why, why is it that I don't live this victorious life that, that I want to live? Oh, Paul asked the same question, right, in Romans 7. Why do I do the things that I don't want to do and the things that I want to do I fail to do? It's because although the old man has been stripped and the old nature has been dealt with, still remains. There's remnants of it still in us. And until we put off this literal body of flesh, there's constantly going to be this, this tension between the spirit and the flesh. And what you yield to most will be the one that dominates you. But notice, you have to reckon yourself as joined to Christ, as dead to sin and alive to God. It begins with a reckoning in your mind, an affirming and understanding who we are in Christ. If you don't know who you are in Christ, then you are going to fail. And So baptism portrays our union with Christ. It portrays the inward cleansing, the renewal, just as Ezekiel talked about being washed with water. We're told also in Titus chapter 3 that we are born again. We're regenerated with the washing and renewal of the water of the word of God. There's a, there's a change that takes place. It's a cleansing. It's a forgiveness. There is one small phrase, however, that summarizes all of this and proves to us that baptism is a matter of confirming our faith, not preceding our faith. And in verse, the end of verse 12, we see it. All this baptism is through faith. One little phrase, two words, through faith. Faith is the means. Faith is the basis. Baptism cannot symbolize faith for an infant who does not have the ability to comprehend the gospel and never mind to express confidence and faith in God. Faith is that which is central here. 
Listen to what John Piper says. John Piper says in these two words, through faith in verse 12, are the decisive defining explanation of how we were buried with Christ in baptism and how we were raised with him in baptism. It was through faith. And this is not something infants experience. Faith is a conscious experience of the heart yielding to the work of God's. Infants are not capable of this and therefore infants are not fit subjects of baptism, which is through faith. I think, I think it's clear. The scripture tells us in Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus gives the great commissions, go therefore, make disciples of nations, right? That's the evangelism, that's the preaching, that's the teaching. And guess what? After that, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Discipleship is the basis Coming to faith, believing, and becoming a Christian is the basis of we confirm that with baptism. We don't get baptized and then confirm it later on. There's no precedent for that in Scripture. It is our duty as believers to become part of a Bible-believing church. And if you are a new Christian, it is your responsibility to be baptized. Let me just say this. If you're a Christian and you've come to faith in Christ and you refuse to be baptized, you're refusing the commands of Jesus. It's the word of God. But what we need to ask ourselves, here's the question we need to ask ourselves today. The question is not, have you been baptized? The question is, have you been born again? Baptism will not save you. Baptism doesn't guarantee you go to heaven. I mean, we saw this, you know, in the book of Acts, Simon Magus was one of the converts in in Samaria when Philip went there to preach. And what happened? He turned out to be a pagan. He turned out to be an unbeliever. Peter says, you and your money rot with you. He he was condemned as a heretic. He was baptized. He's not going to heaven. Ananias and Sapphira, they were members of the church. God struck them dead. They're not going to heaven. They were baptized. There's a lot of people who underwent baptism, whether as infants or as adults. They're not going to heaven. What really matters is, were you born again? Were you circumcised with the circumcision of Christ? Were you regenerated? And what's the proof of that? You have a new heart. Your heart, your heart is sensitive to God. It's sensitive to his word. You can't sin without feeling horrible about it. And when you do sin, you you go to God and you beg for repentance. It's about loving the things God loves and hating the things God hates. The evidence is, is life, spiritual life, the fruit of the spirit being in Christ. And if that's in you, and if you're regenerated, you will be baptized. Baptism is just the outward sign of the inward reality. I thought I was going to cover more text today, but obviously my, my, I have covered enough grounds, and so we are concluded for today. And my encouragement to you is to look to the cross of Jesus and with the eyes of faith understand that you need to be born again. I don't care who you are here today, if you've been a Christian for 20 years or for 20 minutes. 
You need to be born again. You need to seek God to give you a new heart. Pastor Paul shares the story so many times, but he was 37 years old. He was a member of the Lutheran Church. He was a deacon. He was a trustee. He was the head of evangelism committee. In his words, he says he thought he was a super Christian, but he wasn't born again. And so that's my appeal to you today. My appeal, well, how do I become born again if it's something God has to do? That's right, it's something God has to do. But we can plead with him and call out to him. No one who's ever humbled themselves before God has been turned away. Right? (laughs) What did Jesus say? He said, if a son asks his father for for bread, is he going to give him a serpent? No. And so how much more, how much better is God than, than our earthly fathers? If you ask him for the Holy Spirit, will he not give it to you? I believe what we're lacking today in the church more than anything is true converted membership. I think our churches are filled with a lot of religious people. And I I say this humbly because I include myself in this as I'm exhorting myself here, but are we truly born again? Do our hearts beat for God? Let us examine ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious God in heaven, we thank you, almighty God. We thank you for your word. We thank you for um, this time, O Lord. And, And we thank you for this ordinance of baptism. We thank you for delivering it to us for commanding it and enabling us to believe. Oh Lord, I pray, Father, and thank you more importantly for that circumcision of the heart, for that circumcision that, that makes us love you because we know apart from you, we would, we would, we would still be on the road to hell in, in rebellion. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your favor. Thank you for your mercy. And thank you for your grace. We stand here today. Firm in you, in Christ's name, amen.